Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Edward Bertinsky. In bodies of work such as China and oil, Bertinsky has conducted sustained examinations of mankind's use of the planet's natural resources and of the ways industry has transformed nature. His work has been the subject of dozens of major museum exhibitions all over the world, including at the National Gallery of Canada, the Art Gallery of Ontario, the Corcoran Gallery of Art, and plenty more. Bertinsky's most recent exhibition, Water, which features nearly five dozen works mostly examining the ways in which human societies have remade the natural environment in an effort to use water, originated at the New Orleans Museum of Art and the Contemporary Art Center New Orleans and was curated by Russell Lord. It is now on view at the Chrysler Museum in Norfolk, Virginia through May 15th. The book that accompanies the exhibition is published by Steidel. Edward Bertinsky for the full hour, after the break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, the first comprehensive museum exhibition in the United States to examine the renowned experimental college. Leap Before You Look features more than 200 objects and 90 artists, including Annie and Joseph Albers, John Cage, Merce Cunningham, Ruth Asawa, Robert Rauschenberg, Elaine and Willem de Kooning, Susan Weil, and Cy Twombly. Delve into the history and influence of Black Mountain College with in-gallery performances, and more than two dozen public programs, all free and open to the public. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Leap before you look, on view through May 15th at the Hammer Museum. Free for good. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation presents CODA Digital Excavations in African Art, open now through March 19th. This exhibition features a powerful installation of nearly 50 CODA reliquary guardian figures produced in Central Africa between the 17th and 20th centuries to protect the bones of deceased ancestors. The exhibition expands upon a database and series of algorithms created to detect similarities among the sculptures, enhancing the understanding of their origins and functions. Visitors are invited to explore the hidden histories of these sculptures through an immersive digital experience created by Rampant Interactive, St. Louis-based software designers, and the Pulitzer's first game developers and residents. For more details on the CODA project, visit pulitzerarts.org. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. And we're back. Ed Bertinsky, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Great to be here. So in this part of your career, the middle part of your career, if you will, you've tried to make bodies of work about the biggest possible ideas. These tend to be subjects that touch upon the environment, conservation, ideas such as China's address of natural resources, oil, and now, of course, water, the show here at the Chrysler. I know the first water project, the first water work was a project you took on, I think, for National Geographic in 2009. Is that right? Correct. So what was the start of your interest in the subject? Did it come from the magazine? Was it something you'd been thinking out about before? Or did it have something to do with the end of oil? 
I mean, the end of your oil project. <laughs> right. Well, I did. I think it it did come on the heels of the oil project, uh, and that was the kind of a big think about this liquid that courses through pipes around the country and around the world and through ships. And and for me, that you know that that kind of symbol of oil as a as a building block of society and how do I show and represent oil through images kind of led me to the kind of possibility of thinking about something as large as water. And actually before that was this idea of China. So I started thinking in large kind of systems and and, and places where, you know, the variables were infinite in terms of w- where you can go and what you can do. And then being able to narrow it down to a set of images that somehow represent some of the meditation on these big things. So I think those things had to happen first before I could do something like water. And I was already thinking about it in 2007. I was shooting some mining work in Western Australia, but I was meeting a lot of the journalists in the area, and they were talking a lot about the decade-long drought that had been part of Australia's you know, problems at that time. And they were just talking about how farmers were leaving and committing suicide, and there's this huge dryback that was occurring and people just leaving their ranches killing off or trying to sell whatever cattle they had and going to the cities to try and scratch out a living. And it really occurred to me, and I was already working on oil, it occurred to me that the thing about oil is that there are workarounds. There are you know, alternative energies. There's electricity you can use. You know, there's natural gas. If it isn't oil, there's other ways one can find energy. Uh, although, you know, it's a huge baseload that we'd have to replace, but there are alternatives to energy, largely the sun and how to, you know, the sun and the wind and how to capture all of that. When you run out of water, I realized there are no workarounds. There are no easy workarounds, especially if you're in the center of a continent like like Australia. So you have to leave. And that was an interesting realization that, that you know, the, the, this, you know, life-giving liquid has no workaround when it's gone. You know, you, sure, California can build desal plants to deal with San Diego and Los Angeles and, and even San Francisco, but they don't, they can't desal to water all of the farms and, and, and make that something that was viable. So, so that's something that, that I was beginning to think about and, and, and work on. And then I got a, a call, I think it was in 2008, from Nat Geo, and they wanted to know if I was interested in, in exploring the idea of California, you know, as this state that has one of the most complex negotiated, you know, water systems in the world where they're um, redirecting water from seven different states and, you know, every, you know, like, acre foot of water is a negotiated space within within uh, that state. So I thought, well, this is a great ground zero to really understand, you know, water, how, you know, California's literally replumbed the whole state to ensure that, you know, Los Angeles has a safe supply of water, San Diego has a safe supply of water, because these are desert communities, and including Palm Springs and Palm Desert, all these places are absolutely dependent on water from somewhere else. So that for me, was a very interesting way to begin to grapple with this uh, massive resource that that we all depend on. So that's the subject, and we're probably not going to talk too much more about subject, because I've noticed over the years, questioners in almost every interview you do talk mostly about the thing you're shooting rather than the work and the objects you're making. 
and I want I want to spend a lot of time talking about about objects. So when you take on a project, whether it's oil or water, do you think through you know what art or photography or both history might help me get to the images I want to get out of this? Do you do you have a storehouse of image ideas or artists in your head through which you think at the beginning of or during a project like this? Yeah, well, I, in in terms of the water project, one of the things that it occurred to me was, and it started out just to to go back a bit. It started out with the with the Nat Geo project, and I rented a sixty foot bucket lift because I needed to get up. That water it, it functions on a scale on, functions on a scale that isn't on ground level. You, know, you can sit, you know, on the edge of a or stand at the edge of an aqueduct, and and it's doesn't really register as to where it's going through and what it is. So I, so I got a, a lift and I went around for about, you know, five weeks just looking at California and everywhere I wanted to be. It was about 70 foot lift. Everywhere I wanted to be, I could get 70 feet and I'd go up and I'd look. And I realized that 70 feet wasn't high enough. And so I started, started thinking, okay, what else can I use? So I started using helicopters and Cessnas and renting them and, and flying around and trying to find that right point of view that described, you know, how, you know, that aqueduct snakes through the desert and how that aqua, and how that aqueduct feeds you know, the, the farms in the Imperial Valley. And you can get that at about a thousand feet. If you go too far, I found, then you start, you know, the tractors and the homes and all that become insignificant. So it's that kind of spot where you can still register the things that we can identify with a barn or a truck or, a, you know, highway going by or something that, that we can kind of understand the scale of, but at the same time, not get so far that that becomes insignificant. So, so I started working with that. And what I recognized was that you know, as soon as you kind of go up and point your camera down onto the landscape, it, it begins to abstract. The minute you kind of get rid of the horizon line, something else begins to take over. So you can, uh, you know, begin to find the kind of different structures and patterns that, that, uh, that emerge from, whether it's from farming or, or whether it's from how you know dams are being put together and what their purposes are, and, and and the landscape begins to reveal itself, and and you're able to read it. But but that but the things I started noticing was, and I've always liked the kind of overallness of a of the surface of an image, that kind of where nothing is central to it, that everything has a kind of an equal weighting, and it's kind of like field painting or or even abstract expressionism, like de buffet or. Others, you know, like that Diebenkorn and, and, and that the kind of structural flattened space I, I, I liked a lot. So as I'm, you know, flying around, I am trying to find a way to not make, really refer to just simple patterns and get too close. Because if you zoom in on that with a telephoto, then it kind of becomes this a very patterny kind of uh, response to a landscape. But I still wanted enough of a landscape to feel that, you know, this is a place, but that this place is not something that I'm familiar with, that there's something, you know, intriguing and, 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 and evoking a sense of wonder about that place because it almost feels painterly, but at the same time, it is of the real world. And, and to me, it was kind of finding that balance so that it still doesn't break away completely from the notion of landscape, 
but at the same time it's it's feeding into this other channel that that a lot of us who understand art or who have seen a lot of art under you know i think it comes through not necessarily consciously but through my subconscious as i'm working i'm trying to find you know my compositions kind of move towards that kind of structuring of of of, of the frame and the image the Diebenkorn link is really interesting in 1970 he makes just just after he moves to Los Angeles, he makes a series of works on paper of the Central Arizona project, the the water moving project that gets water into Phoenix and in, into the populized populated one or the other part of Arizona. <laughs> and you mentioned Deben Corn in, in in the introduction of the book, so it kind of sounds like painting and thinking about painting. It mostly substantially helped you think through scale yeah a scale i think scale and and structure uh, like in terms mm. of how do you you know take that frame and how do you do something that kind of takes it to another place that it isn't just a simple recording of the real world that you know, I'm not interested in the notion of reportage as much as I am interested in, in the ideas of how do you how do I take grapple with an idea and I always like to move out of subject so let's say it's water but then to go move into the world of art and how does one represent that and to me the real challenge is is trying to find that ability to say okay well I'm interested in farming or I'm interested in our relationship you know to the water's edge to waterfront and so I'll just take that as an idea and then I'll just start pounding away at it. I'll start thinking and I'll start looking at different ways in which other artists have done it. I'll, I'll start looking at, you know, other photographs that have been taken because today on, you know, I would think that most photographers, you know, will look at what's been done and will look at where the, where others have gone. So I do keep myself open to, you know, to other ways of, of thinking to try and actually understand what's already been done a lot and maybe what's a new way to do something what's a new way to represent something and and so it is that kind of to me the real challenge the heavy lifting of almost anything i do in my projects is you know where and what to photograph and and then and once i'm once i'm through that portal of where and what because the why's already you know been answered and then it's kind of now how how am i going to capture that and oftentimes I'll go back to the same subject two, three, four times because I didn't quite get it. The stuff I did in Spain and Monegros, I did a whole two days of shooting with a helicopter. I kept looking at the images on my screen and there was just something that was bothering me, something that wasn't coming together. And then I went back and I said to the helicopter pilot, I think I know what I'm doing wrong. We're flying at 700 feet go to 1800 feet around 15 to 1800 feet all of a sudden at 15 to 1800 feet the whole composition the whole feeling of the frame and everything changed so all mm. of a sudden just none of those images made it you know of the first two days of shooting made it in and then all of a sudden it was that distance and that lens and that landscape that all coalesced to to, to create that body of work but it is that you know kind of looking and trying to find that place in which the image becomes something an object in and of itself that it's 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 something that kind of feeds you as well so it's not just a subject but there's something about the image there's something about that relationship to that space to that place 
and to the and to the color and to the form and you know into the into the print itself because I'm still very much um, a believer uh, as a visual artist. I'm very interested in the relationship of the viewer to the print. I'm still uh, deeply involved in printmaking and creating that experience so that it makes that, that going to see that print is something you can't experience anywhere else. You can't experience in the book. You can't experience it online or magazine. Anything you have to go and see the print because there's something, there's a lot invested in that print and that relationship between you, the viewer, and the scale of that print, and the way it's, and the lighting of that print, and the way it it, it makes you feel. Because when you look at a print that's sixty inches by eighty inches, of uh, hovering over space, you do have a kind of a body experience with that object, and you don't get that in a book, and you don't get that online, you don't get that even in the movies. You, you get that when you stand in front of a print. The, the real difference for me between the book, which I'd seen before I came here, we're taping this at the Chrysler in Norfolk where the show is, is that walking, you know, physically moving through the show, I felt like I could see you trying to figure out what, how to, how to, how to deal with scale, which I didn't get out of the book in the same way because the prints are bigger and the detail is different. And so I think that as, as, as viewers move through the show, or even if they are only before one or two of the works, the question of scale and how to negotiate it and navigate it and, I don't know, manage it pictorially comes through really differently. Yeah, I think so. Because if you look at, um, for instance, if you look at uh, uh, the picture in the book, the, the image in the book, and you say, it, it, let's say it's a pivot irrigation image. Those are the big round big. agricultural irrigation things where water is moved th throughout a quarter mile to up to a mile big circle and you see them from from a plane and we'll have images of a couple of them on manpodcast.com yeah so you take a look at those and so if you look in the book the you'll see a, a a house maybe on the side or a barn you know and so this the diameter of one of these uh, circles is, is a mile across and a mile diameter pivot is about 650 acres and i don't know if you've ever walked a hundred acre farm but that's that's a lot of land but when you kind of look in the book, the 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 barn beside it, or the tractor, or it, it it it's not a significant detail. But if you're going in front of the print, and the print is you know, uh, you know five feet wide, or six feet wide, or even some of them are eight feet wide, and you go into the corner, and all of a sudden that barn is a half inch, that's a big difference. All of a sudden, that becomes a significant detail that informs you of the scale of that image that in a small size print is too small then you know in a small print it's maybe an eighth of an inch or less than an eighth of an inch that, that represented on the on the page and so you don't really you just glance over you don't you, it doesn't become something that you're going to go in there and explore and that's what i think the large print allows for it allows you to go in there and kind of go from corner and analyze that surface from corner to corner because when i shoot one of the things I do think about, and I've always done it, and I think it's something that I've learned in being a large format photographer, like a Carlton Watkins, where you, you spend a lot of time getting there and you, you, you get out your plate film and you put your plate in, you pull and you shoot and, and, and you're committing material to that and time and effort. So there's a lot of that kind of process involved when you do that. And, and I think, you know, that also really, when you look at a frame, when you frame something up, the whole picture has been considered. Every corner, every every bit of that image, uh, you know, has to kind of 
make it through your editing process. And, and I've always maintained that kind of rigor in, in my images so that, you know, everything is kind of intended to be there. It's not, and things aren't happening by chance. I've kind of spent time to position myself in the place where that image comes together as, a, as an image. So it can work both independently as an image, but also it can work within the context of a whole exhibition. Listeners know I'm working on a Carlton Watkins book, so it has certainly not escaped my notice that your working method is really similar to his, everything from planning to using new technology. I mean, so some of these pictures were taken with drones, using drones, and Watkins is, you know, using the biggest camera any American and probably anybody in the world has ever taken into the field at the time. I mean, the the, the edge and boundaries pushing an embrace of the new is is really interesting. We're going to come back to some individual pictures in the series, like the pivot irrigation pictures, in, in a few minutes. But one or one or two more things on on these works and these big series you do within the context of of, of art history. Are there artists who have engaged in environmental and conservation issues related topics about whom you think or at whom you look in particular, or is your consideration of artists past and present? more pictorial than i don't know life or project oriented well i think there there's a whole variety of of different influences that fold into into me deciding where to go and what to do you know i, I know that there are other you know contemporary photographers richard mizrak comes to mind where where the environment and their work david mizell david mizell you know we we share things in common as well so there's a handful of artists who've been you know hard at work in trying to you know work with the and grapple with these subjects of of our the human relationship to to resource human relationship to expansion and cities and mega cities and and uh and so i think there there are you know artists that are working in in that field and you know quite successfully and and i've really been part of that and my beginning of my journey was in the early 80s 80 80 82 83 where i started working with mines and by and large the idea the the, the base idea that I, that i started to grapple with was you know how is uh, our human relationship to nature changing you know how do we look at forests and how do we look at resources and how do we look at water how do we look at you know uh, human expansion and as the top predator species on the planet you know we we are largely now in cro in control of that planet and you know what i point out often is that when i was born there was 2.5 you know billion people on the planet in 19 55 and you know, 2016 we're almost 7.5 so that's almost a billion a decade of my life so there's some that great acceleration i'm in the middle of it i'm, I'm experiencing something in my lifetime that has never occurred before on the uh, on the planet and so so 30 years ago is the, uh, the the decision to say well where are these large scale incursions that we rely upon for our day-to-day -day existence but have no idea where this is coming from or what's happening out there so like this the stone age is still alive and well on, on a scale that is is hard to comprehend so i went to quarries you know iron ore mines the pits and the copper mines and the pits that are are being created you know by those industries are again almost on you know beyond the imagination in terms of scale so so to me it was always interesting to use 
photography and the singular frame and bring that scale into our consciousness as a kind of uh, as a mediator between that landscape that we never go to and the urban existence where most of it is, is used. So that to me was like the big idea and that uh, I figured there's a lifetime's work in just trying to unpack that idea visually. So that's been a, a kind of a methodical, you know, decade by decade approach to to doing this. But the other influences were, you know, Caspar David Friedrich and and you know, I remember seeing an image by my art history teacher of the sh you know, the ship caught in the ice flows and this kind of incredible and of scale that where nature is the predominant force and we're dwarfed by it. But I kind of am inverting that idea that nature's now is subdued and we're the dominant force with our boot on its neck. It's in every picture. It's yeah. in pretty much every picture. That, so that's yeah. that's the kind of inversion of the sublime in a way to say that we are now the force, the the, the other force, the fifth element that, that is now shaping and changing the whole nature of the planet, the oceans, the acidification, the air, the forests, you know, the land, the water. So there isn't a place that we haven't that we're not affecting right now. It doesn't matter where you are in the, at the top and the bottom of the poles are are fingerprints are all over it you know, our evidence is there now so to me that that's the, the you know the the larger idea and the the references and the influences come like i said from writers it comes from other artists it comes from and even going back to you know carlton watkins uh, i remember i think it was 1982 going to the Metropolitan Museum, and there are about 30 mammoth prints, the albumin ones, contact printed. Uh, and, and I just, my, my jaw dropped, and I said to my, I said, I, not, no one's gone past this. Like the, the quality of that work and the vision and the, 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 the technique that he was employing at that time, you know, an 18 by 22 contact print, it, 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 you know, it was like, you know, a, a sight to behold. I, I was really quite... And then thinking about how he did it, it even made, you know, I never complained about going out with an 8x10 and hauling it up the hill because he had to make the road, coat the plate yeah, yeah, yeah. In, a dark tent, in the dark tent. And I thought, whatever I'm doing is, is easy because I can be doing it all on my own with a backpack and a tripod and I can get to where I want to go. And do so, you know, it has evolved to the point where I can actually just do it all by myself, whereas uh, in his case... I think he had teams of people, you know, helping him create these pictures. That, that, that does get to what you're engaging with, both in your work and the entire medium of photography. At the same time in North America, when Americans begin to think of the land as something other than something to be used up as fast as possible, you know, you have the rise of, of transcendentalism and, and then Marsh writing about valuing forests, which is almost completely concurrent with the beginnings of photography in North America, of wet plate photography, you know, non-Daguerrean photography in North America. So the history of, of the photographic medium in, in North America, and I don't know enough about Europe to say this is true of Europe. In Europe, they were more interested in cities, for example, and, and projecting national power, say French photographers. But the history of photography in North America lines up perfectly with Americans becoming aware of, yikes, are we overusing the land? And that's an idea that occurs to Americans in different parts of the country at different times. By the 1860s, they were worried about it in New England, whereas in the 1860s in California, they couldn't care less. You know, rapaciousness was was, was the norm. And that's something that, 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 that photographers have remained, you know, the use of North American land is something in which photographers have remained interested 
for 160 years now. And with with rare exceptions, you know, Elliot Porter makes smaller work than, say, Ansel Adams did and, and a little earlier. The other thing that has been constant with that is making bigger work, figuring out how to make those pictures bigger, that show bigger ideas, bigger landscapes, bigger everything. And And when you decided, this is all a long way of asking, when you decided to go big, I mean, your pictures are huge. When we stand before them, we are very aware of a physical relationship between uh, us and the picture. And we, I anyway, consider that, think about that as a metaphor for our relationship with the land. Was your idea to, to make really big pictures something you did simply because technology allowed it and you've been engaged? I mean, you own a, 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 a print place in Toronto called Toronto Imageworks. Or was your part of the reason you wanted to go big was because that said something? No, it's the latter. It's it said something. Is that I remember when I first started doing work along this line. It was back in the nineteen seventy six, seventy seven, and most everybody at that time was shooting black and white. You know, street photography, thirty five. You know, Gary Winogrand, Robert Frank, all you know, all of you know that school was predominant at the time. And I wanted to go four by five, color, large format, big print. So I at that time. It's interesting at the time a 2024 print was seen as like wow that's huge what are you doing you know and but I was always finding that a little lacking and so when I shot 4x5 you know in the back of my mind I'm thinking big prints because I want that kind of body relationship with the with the object with the with the with the, um, the image and you don't get that even in the book you'll see that they're like maybe you know a little bit bigger than 8x10 and that's kind of a more of a cerebral relationship with the, with the image but you know going back to a larger image it's more of an emotional relationship you fall into it you you're engaged with it in a different way and as i said that first reading so when you come to an image and you, you might see it as a whole and so it kind of reads one way as a whole. And then if you go closer, and the closer you go, the more is revealed. And then maybe sometimes, like especially in the quarry work, I used to, people used to tell me they'd go and all of a sudden they'd see a 40-gallon drum in the I've back I've been looking corner. at the quarry pictures for 15 years, and I still find that stuff, and I still feel disoriented. <laughs> yeah. So when you find that drum, you then reverse engineer, and you go, holy cow, yeah. now I know how big this space is. And because you can, you know what a drum is, you know what the size of a ladder is and a human on that ladder. So those kind of small little artifacts reveal the scale that in which we operate. And to me, that was the interesting thing to build in is that you know, where does, how do you make a print give you kind of almost a sense of vertigo or a sense of, you know, wow, where, how big is this place? Or I can't register what I'm looking at. And and for images, we see so many images, you know, I don't know how many images we see a day as uh, individuals, but hundreds and thousands, you know, and especially now with the portability of images and phones and, you know, we become a visual culture. So ultimately, if an, if an image can kind of, stop you and you have to spend time to figure out what's going on and that's a that's a hard image to make and that we're so easy we, we're so astute at reading and quickly unpacking what we're seeing and uh, and it just registers into place you know well that's a fashion image oh that's a you know that's a photojournalistic image and you know and that's a war image and you know this is um you know a wedding picture and we just quickly throw them into that category and we under, digest them and understand them 
there's a celebrity image, you know, or whatever. And so that, you know, so to create an image where it, you don't know where to put it, you don't, and it doesn't quite register yeah. in the way in which we normally have, it's something that I'm interested that, you know, there's still room for photography to, to challenge our, our, our visual ability to, to read it and to fully understand it. So that, in a way, I'm interested in the kind of time I spend in making them. I, you know, I hope that when people get in front of them, they spend some time with them as well because they're they're constructions. I, I tend to point out to people that I, I make images. I don't take images. And so I start with an idea and then sometimes it's two to three years later that all of a sudden I've got it. I've nailed the, the, the image that I had in mind two years ago. So... So it's something that is a slow, arduous process, and there's always stuff in the mill that I'm trying to, to to realize as an image. But it doesn't just happen by chance anymore. Very rarely does it happen by chance. It's by 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 intention. That's interesting to hear you talk about slowing people down so they look at pictures. Virtually every artist we have on the show who is a photographer talks about how to deal with that issue. So, for example, a few months ago when when Kathy Opie was on the show. She talked about blurring familiar landscapes like Niagara, the big trees in California, to the point where people had to slow down to figure out what they were looking at. And that was her way of dealing with it. So it's, 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 it's interesting to hear that you think through the same ideas and get to a different place on how to do that. So turning back toward, toward, toward pictures and individual pictures, one of the things that runs through the pictures is that man-made processes create right angles and hard shapes and straight lines whereas the processes that are not man-made, say the Colorado River pictures, and we'll have a couple images of those on manpodcast.com, whereas the, the, the nature-made things are organic shapes, not straight lines, not right angles. And throughout the body of work, there is this interplay between straight lines and right angles and organic shapes. Did you know you were going to do that going into the project, or was that something, I don't know, feature focus, I don't know what the right word is, that evolved over the course of the five or six years? Actually, I didn't really spend that much time thinking about, you know, those two things. I think that I arrive at, at the subject and I arrive at the thing that I want to put in front of my camera through a, a kind of a, my own method of reasoning through, like, for instance, like the Colorado River Delta. And, and that's organic. And it, and it looks like a tree formation. That's where the water, uh, the pumping action of the tides has created this kind of you know, literally a root system or tree system yeah. that, that 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 is quite remarkable and startling. But, you know, that I got there because, you know, that used to be a, a verdant area of, of brackish water, the fresh water of the Colorado mixing with the water of the Sea or Cortege and creating a, you know a thousand square mile marshy area that was full of life and ducks and animals and people and then when the Colorado River 40 years ago was shut off completely and all being used for agriculture and for California to grow and Phoenix and et cetera et cetera the Imperial Valley all the uses of of the Colorado River water so 100% was being used so all of a sudden that 1000 square miles is now a desert and so how do you, you know, I went there because it used to be, uh, you know, a marshy delta, and now it's a desert. 
and so the structure, and even in there, I found some structure. So some abandoned shrimp farms. It's in the show as well. It's there. So that's a, a abandoned you know enterprise, commercial enterprise for growing shrimps, which failed. But it's still in the delta. I, I did look at that and focus on that a bit. But by and large, just the fact that this this is something that's changed dramatically by the hand of man, and now nature is kind of redrawing that landscape. And it almost in a funny way, drawing a, the shape of a tree, or you know, it's drawing itself or a on leaf, that line, veins or in a leaf, veins yeah. in a leaf. So it's redrawing that. And I thought that was interesting that 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 nature's you know, in a way, will 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 prevail. It will redraw itself, and whether we're here or not is not the issue. Nature will remain and will. You know, re- rebuild from the the DNA strands of whatever you know is is left, and it will find a new a new form that may or may not include us. You know, so that's kind of the interesting thing is that the, the persistence of nature and the power of nature that that it is a force that that will prevail. I believe. My guest is Edward Bertinsky. We'll be right back after a break. France's Sun King, Louis XIV, decorated his palaces with glittering tapestries, handwoven by renowned artists. This collection was the finest the world had ever seen, using gold and silver-wrapped thread to proclaim the king's magnificence. Woven gold, Tapestries of Louis XIV, on view at the Getty, features rare loans from the French state and evokes the brilliance of the Sun King's court. Visit in person or online to discover these larger-than-life tapestries and how they were made. A catalog of the same name brings the exhibition into your home. To learn more, visit getty.edu. Marcel Brodeter's A Retrospective is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. The highly influential artist's first major exhibition in New York reunites key works from all aspects of his career, from early objects made of mussels and eggshells to books of his poetry and his most ambitious project, a fictitious museum with himself cast as curator administrator, press agent, and founder. Get more information and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. And now back to my conversation with Edward Bertinsky. So as you talk about that, I think of a picture such as Colorado River Delta Number 9, a picture you've made above Sonora, Mexico. And so it's a picture that, that, that kind of shows where man has shepherded the Colorado River into place. And then you just as you were talking about into straight lines, shepherded it into place in straight lines. And then just as you were talking about nature finds its way. And, is, and when it leaves those straight lines, it immediately returns to those organic patterns. Did you approach making pictures of straight lines and man's impact any differently than you approached pictures of, I mean, obviously there's a man impact to, to, to drying up the Colorado River, but pictures that show more organic forms and processes. Well, I think my preference, or, or if you look at through the, the, the constant thing that usually works throughout my work, is that there is some evidence of our incursion into, into that landscape. So that to me has always been this underlying thing, is that, you know, what what has been our the human's impact here or the human work here. So that to me has always been the important aspect of it. And I, I got there because I, 
when I was doing just straight landscapes, which I did for a while, I was thinking of uh, abstract expressionism. I was thinking about all overness. I was thinking about the detail that the large format camera can capture. I was thinking about color. I was thinking about times of year, cycles of nature. I was thinking of a lot of different things when I was doing these early landscapes in the late 70s and early 80s. And I kind of ran into a wall. I kind of thought, start, started thinking, as you mentioned earlier, Elliot Porter, Ansel Adams. And it was kind of like, no matter how I tried to do something unique and different and interesting in that, and you know, using nature itself. It just always kind of was being drawn by this gravitational force towards like a genre that's already been understood and digested and somehow not relevant. And when I started thinking about where, where else I can go with landscape and started thinking about mining, because I'd seen mines, I'd worked in mines, and then when I started shooting them, it felt right. It felt like, okay, now I am actually an artist in sync with my time, that this is the thing that's happening in my time. This is the landscape that I should focus my attention on because, yes, if, you know, if I'm focusing on that raw, pristine landscape, am I, you know, other than a formal exercise, am I doing anything that we don't under, already understand and have, haven't already absorbed? And the whole notion that, you know, by making beautiful landscapes of nature that will be more prone to preserving it, I thought was also uh, an idea that had that, that had found its day. It's, it was no longer relevant because if had that worked, it would have, you know, I mean, Ansel Adams made it work and he, you know, went to Congress and, and created some, you know, as did Watkins and created parks and, you know, and th that their work was able to, you know, resonate at that time and made those in power believe that this was something worth preserving. And that's that that was that time. And now I felt that the camera looking at our work, the things that we're doing and revealing that because these places are very hard to get to. It's not something that we would ever normally find ourselves. You wouldn't find yourself in the largest copper open pit mine in the world but you know i would find myself there and trying to capture that so so that to me was far more interesting as an artist to enter into that space and to be kind of in sync with the time i'm in that i'm speaking about something that is important to my generation and generations to follow that this is something that we need to pay attention to because it can undo us and there is this you know larger narrative that you know all the images speak to that that uh, in gestalt and in, in aggregate you know they tell a large narrative about our relationship to the planet and to nature let's turn to a picture from 2009 called shasta lake reservoir you could have taken a picture of I mean, you know, the United States in particular has dammed up the entire frickin' country. Why why that lake? Why that reservoir? Does it have something to do with the art history of the region? Thomas Hill, William Keith, and of course, again, Watkins? Not so much that. I think my research took me to Shasta Lake because at the time when I was researching, I was saying, where can I show evidence of the declining snowpack, the evidence that... that you know, what was working in the past isn't working now. And when I took that picture, there had already been over five years of drought, and that was the lowest level that Shasta Lake had recorded. It was just at that time, maybe 10 feet above the intake valves for the, for the dam. So, so <laughs> I thought, I'm going to take this picture because that picture is about the rim. 
yeah. you know, that, that's left. So that's about a hundred foot, you know, drop in, in what the normal level. So what's hap- what was happening, what I wanted to talk about in that picture was that this, this lack of water, the, you know, this, this attempt to, you know, preserve water and to both in the dam, both for power usage, but also for, for water security can, you know, can fail because if there's not enough water to capture and the demand is still too high, you're going to, you know, you're going to, you know, find that you're at the end of the equation and there's, and, and as soon as you, you know, hit the, you know, go below the intake valves, well, you're not making any more power and now you're just using the water as um, draining whatever's left of it for, for consumption or farming and then, and then it's the end game. So, and what's happening is it's been, it's gotten worse since then. So, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at, I think when the snowpacks last year was 15% of normal. Well, that's, that's deadly because that snowpack is what keeps creeks going in August. You know, it's still the last of it is, is now disappearing. And, and snow also it has a whole different way in which it feeds the land because snow slowly percolates into the water table. But the, the plants aren't absorbing it and using it. In, like in the summertime, they're dormant. So that snowpack actually gets into the aquifers and recharges aquifers. Leaves trees more unable to resist pests and Correct. insects and all kinds of things. You know, one of the other great things about this Shasta Lake picture and a number of the other pictures is if, if one thinks about some of these pictures, thinking about the history of landscape painting, foreground, middle ground, deep ground, um, you know, in, 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 say, Bierstadt, you have a lot of the action in either the foreground or the middle ground. If you go back to Claude, you have people in action in the middle ground. Like in this Shasta Lake picture, the the whole idea of you know, this 500-year-old idea of foreground, middle ground, deep ground is blown to bits because you can kind of see what planners and dam builders intended to to be the dominant ground, which is where the tree line starts at water's edge. And by the combination of drought, and we know from information we bring to our daily lives, let alone an exhibition, climate change is changing these things. You know, we see that whole idea change. And that happens over and over again in this show. I want to ask about two of the oil spill pictures. These are these are pictures that are related to the Deepwater Horizon disaster in the Gulf in 2010. One is oil spill number five. We'll have an image of it on the website, and it's of a fire on a rig. I don't know if I'm using the right mm-hmm. terms. And as a couple of ships are fighting the fire by pumping water onto the rig, there is a rainbow in the spray that's kind of, you know, just off the center of the picture. Happy accident or aha moment you wanted and needed that there? Well, that rainbow was, because of the spray, right. was perpetual. Oh, it was there what, the whole time you were there? Yeah, it doesn't disappear. It's, so you had full sun and the whole thing the whole time you were there? Yeah, ah, so, ah, so that ah. rainbow just kind of exists as a result of the spray and the refracting of that, you know, I guess the s- small water droplets in creating so the rainbow doesn't disappear it's just constantly this arc between those two spray hoses and, and it doesn't go away it, it gets more a little bit more pronounced as you fly around it because that was being shot you know from uh i think that that one was shot from a cessna so you know you can get a, a slightly different you know strength of the ra- of that rainbow but it's always perpetually there are you okay with references to luminist art and and the way american painters 
of of the 19th century just loved putting rainbows in every damn thing they could is that like the hudson river school yeah 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 <laughs> uh, yeah they did like to i don't do too many of them but that no was, that's why that one jumped out <laughs> i don't do too many of them but that one was interesting because it was you know like i said it was part of the whole config it's a dystopian rainbow yeah as opposed to an it's optimistic an, it's an rainbow. unhappy rainbow <laughs> oil spill number 10 is a it's about as sad as a big abstract picture of seemingly abstract picture of ocean can be on the left hand side there's water and on the right well maybe i'll let you say what is on the left hand side of the picture we see water and then what there's a line kind of diagonally across the middle and why is that line there and what is being what is happening now uh, if we're talking about the same image it's the green the green yep. image and so what what's happening is that that is the actual oil the the crude that's coming out of the ground 60,000 barrels a day that was spewing forward. And to me, it's it's in this section I call distressed landscape. So what it's looking at is that oil kind of going across and part of the Mississippi River outflow. So what I see in, in that image, is it's like a, a double distress in that that color of that water is green. And it's not supposed to be that green, but it's that green because all of the phosphors and nitrates that is coming that's coming down through the Mississippi from central USA in farming and farming and that extra nutrient that gets caught up in the water uh, when it hits the mouth of the Mississippi in the Gulf, it creates algae blooms, and that those algae blooms are are you know, create green water, and then you have this black oil running. So it's a it's like a, a double whammy in terms of uh, distressed situation for the natural habitat. And, and the, the problem with algae blooms is that once you, know, you remove all the free oxygen within the water, then if fish swim into it, they start to suffocate. And if they don't know, if they can't get out in time, then they die. And so, you know, what's happening there is, is, is a very difficult uh, problem to solve in that you know, how do we, you know, take uh, uh, all that, how do we stop that phosph phosphor and, and uh, that nitrate from getting into the water system and, and washing down down the river systems into, into the ocean? And it's not easy. It's not a, there's no easy solution to that. So you'd have to literally contain all the tile drains. You have to start, well, many farms have taken tile drains so that, that in the spring they can get at their soil much quicker, but those tile drains go right into the streams and that's carrying high levels of, of uh, fertilizer with it. And so that's, that's, that's the problem. So this is a picture that has a little bit of horizon line at the very top of the image. I think you flew over it in a Cessna. You kept the horizon line. You decided how to line up in, in the camera this, 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 this unbelievably dramatic jagged line. Why is this composition of the picture the one you wanted why did you want to keep the horizon line in it why did you want that line where it was how because you could have kept flying over this for sadly days and taken 50 pictures of this thing but why is this the one that worked for me a, a, a composition is a, a difficult thing to actually understand until you know i'm in the presence of the subject and and then i let it deliver me the cues in which it begins to work so uh, to me it's always this kind of encounter session with the subject and then it's a, a bit of a dance back and forth with it to find 
at, you know the right place where the image starts to kind of work as a as a complete object and in this case with the with the black line going up through the center and, and off to the left and the horizon first it gives you a sense of of, of scale uh, that this is a, a vast ocean uh, or a vast body of water you know the, the the small clouds for me were really you know added a, a bit of a dimension at some somewhere the eye can go to on the on the horizon as well and, and kind of rest and then go back into the into the image you know, and again, this ha this contains that green that that I spoke about, which is that algae. You know, high, which high... seems to push that part of the of the water toward the viewer. I mean, it it, it seems like it's almost coming toward you. There's an iridescence. In it. Yeah, there, yeah. There, there's this crazy color that 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 that's happening, and you know, and to me that was uh, you know, when I talk about composition, it's it's interesting because somebody says, well, you know, how do you know how do you do it? And I I keep thinking it's more like being um, almost like a, a a safe cracker you know that you don't know the combination but you know all these things have to drop and all these tumblers have to drop so it has to be the right light it has to be the right perspective you know the, the, the you know the color in, within the image at the, the time of year so it could be different at different times of year uh, the atmospheric haze you know again different times of year carry different atmospheres uh, then you've got you know how the the lines move and how the momentum through through it so the geometry of the of the image you know if the color the time of year and the structure and the geometry if any of these isn't working and that's for beyond the technical side of it making sure the exposure is right that it's in focus and all the other things but if all those things aren't aligned then then the composition doesn't seem to be there so kind of through time and experience and that's what I think, you know, what doing this for 40 years gives you is you don't have to always keep making those same mistakes. You kind of understand where where an image becomes, you know, powerful and what makes an image, you know, something that that is startling or interesting to to behold and to be in the presence of. It seems to me, though, the big difference between composing not all of these water pictures, but but most of them. And much of what you've done for the previous 30 years is there's no tripod. You're moving, you know, for, for the water pictures, because of a Cessna or a helicopter or a drone, you're moving. And for, you know, the vast majority of your career, you're holding still. Is that a difference? Did you have to adjust to that? Oh, I did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, but, but I wanted the image from the Cessna or the image from a helicopter to appear as if I was on a tripod. <laughs> it does. And that's, so, so what was the, what, and it, I mean, it really is, I mean, you know, David Mizell is, is the other contemporary of yours who I think shoots the most from above. And it amazes me about both, and maybe in a previous generation, William Garnett too, in black and white and in kind of 12 by 12 or 16 by 16 prints. I mean, a whole, whole different thing, but it, it, it amazes me that so much of that work, and I know it isn't, you know, I mean, I know it took a while to get there. Looks like it is still. Were there things that you did or, or learned specific things that made that happen, that created that effect? Well, I did try, to be honest with you, I did try everything I could to try and get my 4x5 out, you know, out, the, out in a helicopter and to make it work. And I, for the first three or four times I rented a helicopter, it was with sheet film and, you know, large format and trying to get it all to, to shooting work at together. the bottom not shooting at the bottom shooting off with it out of a helicopter with the door off oh oh god so most of the time i shoot with the door off in a helicopter but no matter how hard i tried 
to make it work with film, the the failure rate was, was insane. It was just too hard to compose. The shutter speeds weren't fast enough. The films were slow. The camera is cumbersome. If it's um, if I was pointing it any downwards, you get this drooping film, and all of a sudden the edges are a little soft. And the and 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 then plus shooting wide open, these lenses are really optimized at like an f sixteen f twenty two, which so. So even on bright days with my 4x5 camera to get the kind of sharp pictures I got, I was usually shooting at f22 or f, you know, uh, f16. Well, you can't you can't do those speeds uh, on an aircraft, even a hovering um, helicopter. You need to be in the you know minimum minimum two uh, fiftieth of a second. Better off in the one eight hundredth or one seven fiftieth of a second, even at one one thousandth. So the the large format camera, you know, was a complete fail. So after I'd kind of spent a fortune, I even went out and bought a Linhof Aerial, and that was a fail too. And mm. so I, everything I tried because it was the distance I was working with and the kind of light I like to work with, which was lower. It's usually it wasn't on bright sunny days. It was usually on overcast days mm. or. And so that, that I had, or evening light, as like the Shasta Lake, for instance, was quite late light. That was, um, you know, a light at around, you can see even the, 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 the crimson kind of colors in the sky. Well, that was maybe, you know, five minutes after sunset. So you get that kind of beautiful light, mm -hmm. that glow, the glowing light. Well, you know, I, you couldn't do that with a, a, a slow films and slow lenses and all that. So it was really the eureka moment happened when I, I rented a digital camera. And at that time, they were like the Hasselblad. It was like a 40 megapixel. And I started shooting with it. And I can get the shutter speeds up and I can use the lenses much more mm. openly, like almost wide open. And they were still sharp corner to corner. And so that mm. was the transitional moment. Plus, when you're shooting from the air, you know, you're moving and... Even if, and when you see something, you think you're close to something, you know, you, you start shooting kind of heavily around it because I found that, you know, there is a difference. So if you told the helicopter pilot, just go back there a bit. I just saw something that's great. He'll try and get back there, but he'll never get there. And the difference, even though you're in the sky and the difference between where I saw it and where I wanted it and to get back to the place where I wanted to be, it never happens. So you literally have to be on the ready to make that image you know as it's occurring you don't get a second chance so if you see it it's there and if you get it you're it's great and quite often i'll have like maybe six pictures let's say to to the shasta lake there may be six or seven around that particular view and it's it's uncanny how one will will just mm -hmm. be the right one the other one might be just a little off here a little off there this and that. so so that but all seven would be, you know, you know, I've got the technique down that all seven would make the grade in terms of sharpness and exposure and all that. They're all, you know, they can all make a print that size, but there is something about, mm. you know, the proportionality and the positioning and how everything kind of fits together in, in that image. So that, and that's the way I was able to then make that aerial feel as if you know it was put on tripod and, and that whole frame was intentional that it wasn't like 
oh, I got lucky, I got this shot. You know, it's like, it's, it's, a, it's again, a made picture, but it's a whole different way of making it. It's, it's far more, I had to go into more rapid fire in the zones of where I believe the image is because it's very hard to control a Cessna or a chopper to remain in a position that you believe is the one that's going to give you the shot. So you have to kind of work that, the edge of that picture until it comes into play. So stepping back from water with a couple questions to close, taking water and oil in China and even going back to mining if you want, or railroads or whatever, do you think of any particular pictures in, say, water as being related to individual pictures in those other series, whether either because it was your intent when you researched a thing or that as you went through the process of selecting what the water pictures were going to be, you thought, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm onto something here and here and they're 15 years apart, but pictorially or whatever, the pictures are related. Well, I mean, if you go back even to the early pictures, which is 83, 85, the rail cut series. And I think that a lot of people believe that that was really the first series that I had done that started, you know, garnering a lot of attention about, you know, the way I work and, and the images that I'm making. And that's really when the museum started to collect my work as well. And I started having museum shows, but you know there is something you know I think about the the um, that that's still there, that's still present is the way I, in which I fill the frame and the amount you know of horizon or the lack of horizon quite often, or just the sliver of horizon that I often put in place. Because the horizon I think is it's an interesting thing. It seems kind of mundane, but it it, it, it has a huge impact on how one responds to to, to the to the image. And and where the image takes one as a you know as a viewer, so I'm always very aware of of, of my horizon line and, and and where it sits. It's kind of one of those key fundamental things in, in landscape. And when you kind of totally obliterate it and it's not there, then there is again that flattening of space, that all overness, and a lot of the getting up at you know 700 to 2,000 feet, in some cases even 10,000 feet in the pivot irrigation when that, that one with the four circles that's uh you know one mile by three miles wide uh, so that's a lot of space so i'm it's at ten thousand feet up you said yeah wow uh, you know that, that that scaling that that begins to happen but it still is that flattening of space the, the pivot irrigation to me was was something that was a real moment where i didn't expect to ever go there so when i started the water project i never imagined i would have those pictures and and the thing was is again it was this almost years of thinking about the Ogallala aquifer and how to represent water that we don't see. That's the big aquifer that runs over the middle part of the United States and into southern Canada. Yeah, it's uh it's it goes through seven states. So it's yeah. about nine lake areas of water was originally the and I think they're it's down to seven, so it's being depleted yeah, quite yeah. rapidly. Uh and it is a huge gift um, from six million years ago of water. But I was trying to show how do you how do you show water that we don't see and those pivot irrigations was like the perfect way to I think show them, and then how do I represent them? So I went in there at first and showed them an oblique way, and then I showed them just one single circle at a time, and then it, and then I saw uh, the opportunity to actually string a few of these together and just take these little strips of landscape off of off of that, and uh, and that opened up a whole way of looking at that landscape that I'd never imagined at the beginning of the film. So that, uh, of, of the, of the project of, uh, of making the water project. So that was one of those 
you know, interesting evolutions. And it's the first time that I made pictures because when you go straight down, because I was shooting through a belly of a Cessna, when you shoot straight down, when I was kind of in my studio and trying to figure out which way's up for the picture, mm. you, you know, it could be, you have four, four choices <laughs> that they don't, you know, it doesn't, it could be any of those because you're looking straight down. Sounds you know. like a silhouette, which way is up with a silhouette. <laughs> you don't know. And actually a bunch of, a bunch of the pivot irrigation pictures and some of the glacier pictures in Iceland, I thought of, of, of silhouette when I looked at them. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that upness is like, where is it? You know, like it's, yeah, it, yeah, it, exactly it, that. You know, uh, and that was interesting to me. That was the first time that I'd actually bumped into something that in, in my work, and that again, what it kind of, you know, with the feedback back into my thinking and 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 and, and discovering something like that is um, when I'm on a, a kind of a conceptual quest of how do I say something, how do I do something through the making of pictures how do i represent something that i'm thinking about and then using all the tools of uh, and all the knowledge I, I guess i've acquired over the years in in art and looking at art and making art that when you kind of go go there with a the camera you're, you've got that kind of back background so the thing that i think again experience gives you is there's a repertoire of things uh, that that uh, allow you to kind of not necessarily consciously, but through your subconscious emerge, and then you find the solutions to these visual problems. And to me, that's what I still find exciting about, you know, working in the medium is that I'll find myself in a place that I never expected. And and that's rewarding to, 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 to all of a sudden be surprised by where you ended up in a, in a project that I'd never imagined would, would have those images in it at the beginning. You, you, you just never can tell where it's going to take you, but you take the journey. So finally... Is there a picture of yours that you think is, or maybe hope is, uh, might be a better phrase, is your trademark image the picture people think of when they think of your work now or maybe in the future? Because I know some photographers really don't get to pick their trademark image. You know, like Alex Soth has talked about this, where he's really grateful to have a trademark image because it means people will always know who he is, but he didn't get to pick it. Is, is that one the one with the guy holding the plane? You got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i i I'm, i would say that the there's kind of two of them that i have that have become trademarks that i didn't pick you know but the the first one is the the red tailings from, uh, from the manufactured landscapes yeah, yeah so there's a tailings pond and it's interesting because when i first put that work out i had just come off of the quarry series and people just really loved the quarries they were very painterly and they're structural and there's you know the scale was working and there's a lot of you know cool things that were going on in those images and i made them they were the biggest i started working in the, which was at 40 by 50 inch prints at that time and people were responding to that so then i right after that i went into these tailings pictures and people went like whoa what's he doing and so the first reaction was a, a quite a negative one people thought that you know oh, this isn't going to go anywhere and these are pretty you know these pictures are more political more of an indictment i know i mean i didn't see them precisely that way but they were more problematic when you look at a landscape like that you think you know not all is right in, in eden here yeah so so they kind of what happened is that when i came out with those pictures people started responding more to the quarry work so you know people mm -hmm. said well you know he's gone somewhere but i still like this work so I'll, I'll i'll stick with that and i'll buy one for my collection or whatever so and i didn't sell very much of that for the first two or three years mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden 
you know, it, I think in manufactured landscapes, when the when when the book came out and it ended up being on the cover, and then people started to rediscover that work, it became like almost iconographic, and, it, and then people just started reproducing it, and it still gets reproduced all the time. Mm. So that became this oft-repeated image. And then the other one that again the public has chosen is the in China. The, there's a chicken packing plant that I photographed with ladies in pink uniforms. Oh right, yeah. And so that's by far the most re- mm. reproduced image I ever I've ever really made. yeah yeah. Wow. It's like people it's just constantly are asking for that picture and i think it's in one image symbolizes china in a way the manufacturing might of china and uh, the kind of workforce this kind of unified workforce that 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 is highly trained to produce whatever we we consume and i think it, it it's become that kind of representation of that idea the one I kind of like out of even out of the water show the one that is one of the pivot irrigations and it's it's largely the, the one that has the a lot of the browns and 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 it has a triangle in the middle and two circles oh, yeah. on the sides and and to me that was uh you know somehow one of these images that kind of came my way and was something that 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 I I was it was a real pleasant surprise and and yeah and, and that's that one I I keep you know, going back to and I actually have it in my house it's one that that was a really rewarding images image from the uh, from the project where everything kind of came together in a way that I could never expect or anticipate and it, and it seemed like it, it it seemed so not like a photograph it just seemed like you know is this possible and that was kind of neat it's a very solo whip one yeah so are you okay with those two the, the China picture and the manufactured landscapes picture being the go-to images when they hear your name? Or is that a bad, difficult, annoying thing? I mean, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about it. It is what it is. And, and, and you know, it's something that I don't think any artist can really control. Right. These things. And kinda... you can't try to make that picture. You can't try you to know, make. No. No. Yeah. No. No. I'll, like I'll find. I'll sometimes try and guess which one's the one that's going to be <laughs> the one that people react to. But I, it, it's hard because it is something to do with zeitgeist, and it has something to do with you know other things, other forces that, that you know you're in the current of that of the of that time of the time and and and, and the culture. But the, to know which one is going to emerge is not always. I mean, I guess musicians you know, put out their single and that's the one they expect is going to be oh, the true. one, the one that's going to be the one that catches on the meme that gets out there and, and everybody plays on the radio stations and is going to represent the album or whatever. But I don't, you know, I don't think visual artists really think that way. You put or get a, to do that. Or get to do that. You yeah. can try to put something on the cover, but that doesn't mean that's going to be the one that sticks. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, the cover image of the water book, you know, but it would you know, certainly, you know, if I pr- printed infinitely, it would probably be the most sold picture out of out of the book. You know, but in a limited edition, mm-hmm. it's, but there was a lot of you know demand for it. But uh, you know, again, I I I, I love the image, but there were ones inside that I thought were also you know that that were more challenging and more interesting in terms of taking me to a new place visually. Ed Bertinsky, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. 
The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.